creeds and criticism meet. to the Split Frame of Reference podcast. All right, welcome one and all to our grand experiment. I'm Nick. Uh, I suppose I should introduce myself right now. I'm a master's student at Fuller Theological Seminary up here in Pasadena. I'm a third-year master's student in biblical languages. And yeah, that's studying essentially New Testament stuffs. So all that fun stuff. Yeah, and I'm Allison, and I'm a PhD student here at Fuller Seminary. I'm studying systematic theology with a minor in New Testament with Joel Green. Oh, so by systematic theology, you mean Wayne Grudem's systematic Uh, textbook. Uh, So our podcast will cover, today at least, uh, gender theology, but... uh, Overall, we want to cover topics such as eschatology, what it means to be human, other nerdy topics, maybe some apologetics. Stuff that uh, covers a wide uh, spectrum of issues in current evangelical theology and stuff like that. Yeah, and some things that maybe were issues before, like slavery and some of the weird scriptural uh, arguments and twisting that went on to try to get that. Right, but before we get into that, Book Corner! Book Corner! Yay! Uh, Book Corner was something that Oliver Crisp in my first quarter here at seminary did. Uh, It was essentially he'd bring in like 20, 30, 40, actually 60 pounds of books one time, set them on his table and basically tell us why these things are worth reading, why we should own them, or in some cases, really funny instances, why we shouldn't own them. And so I'm in a uh, directed study with Tommy Givens here at Fuller, Professor of New Testament, and our topic, or our classes quarter, is on eschatology and sacramental Judaism in Paul. And so we decided that we should read a big book by John Barclay called Paul and the Gift, which essentially, and I'm going to just quote from this because I think this is really awesome, and essentially the, the book is about the multiple meanings of gift in Paul, but also in Second Temple Judaism and the Greco-Roman world. And by that, essentially, it's 500 pages on what gift or charis, or, you know, grace, uh, means in Paul and in the surrounding world around Paul and the implications that has for Pauline theology, for anthropology, what it means to be human, uh, what state the human person is born into, what she has to go through. Um, and talks and it specifically talks about the, the Christ event or the Christ relationship we have, whether or not um, what it means to give a gift in the ancient world, and if that includes social benefits or if that includes mutuality or reciprocity and stuff like that. So yeah, I'm going through that right now, and it's a lot of fun. It's $70, but it's, it's yeah. a wonderful book. Maybe not that wonderful. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. Actually, enough, arguably it is. Arguably <laughs> it is so far. It's a game changer. It's like E.P. Sanders' old book on Paul and Judaism. So, so yeah. that's me. That's me right now. Yeah, I'm uh, doing a directed study with Joel Green, and uh, right, uh, I've, I'm reading a couple books. I've read um, some by Van Hooser, um, but something that's kind of a bit new to me is uh, theological interpretation of scripture, hmm. and it, it's new and it's not, because it's essentially what the early church did, and it's what Christians everywhere now do, just in a less structured way. Um, is it even something we're aware of at the time, you think? Uh, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> In right. my opinion. Okay. Um, actually, when I was uh, first talking to Joel about this, I kept going, oh, yeah, Dig Carson does this. I don't think he knows it, but he is. <laughs> um, it, it, let me, I'll just get into it a little bit. So yeah. the, re, the, uh, 
the author I was looking at this time around was Foul. Was is, is his name is Foul, and the book is Engaging Scripture: Challenges in Contemporary Theology. And so basically, what he does is a little different from the historical, um, critical, grammatical method. Um, he basically says, "Well, what's the telos? What's the reason why we're reading the scriptures as Christians?" Um, is it to understand, you know, what people way back when believed? Or is it really to move towards communion with God? And of course, the answer is yes, communion with God. Even, I, in my opinion, even if we do think um, historicity and other things are important. Um, and so I'll, I'll read a little bit of what he says of it. Um, so the central argument of his book is that given the telos of the Christian, uh, how, why Christians interpret the scripture, Christian interpretation involves an interaction in which Christian convictions, practices, and concerns are brought to bear on the interpretive process in ways that both shape that interpretation and are shaped by it. Hmm. Um, So some of the weird stuff that this gets into, um, or some of the implications, I should say, is um, what does it mean when we say, when we ask, what does the text mean? Um, what 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 does it mean? Um, does it mean that um, there was only one single meaning way back when, and that it has no bearing on today? Is it a linear process where um, we tr- we mine the text for the single meaning and from there try to um, extract it and then apply it in various ways, hmm. or is there this other maybe interesting way in which yes, um, Paul or a variety of authors sometimes for one book. Is, are communicating something, there's a communicative action going on, but at the same time, we're, um, when we're reading the text, we're actually bringing something with us. You know, whether or not, I'm not talking about eisegesis, just when we come to the text, we bring ourselves, we bring our culture, and we're going to notice things that others don't, and others will notice things that we don't, and our situation is going to be different. And yet the text is relevant for us today because the Holy Spirit's at work. Hmm. And so the big um, insight I had was this idea that meaning can be there in terms of analogy. So we, so actually, and this is in Philippians um, with the Christ. Um, it's where the Christ hymn is too. Um, Philippians 1, 26 and 2, 6 through 11. You basically have Paul um, using um, the, the analogy of Christ as analogy for the uh, the Philippian believers, and basic just because you can see that because Christ was saved by God, therefore they will be too. And so, isn't that an interesting connection? It's this: the text is actually something that's relevant for today and not just way back then. So, do you see that as being in tension with? You mentioned the. You should also explain for those who don't know uh, what is the historical uh, grammatical. Uh, Interpreta- interpretive mode that you mentioned earlier on is that we we focus exclusively on uh, grammar, on syntax, on the le- uh, yeah. So if I, if we yeah. can, pl- so uh, maybe I'm being a little simplistic on this. Um, this was this was my view before. The, um, basically, if we knew the right, so if you can know the right term, like what was meant by certain terms, and if you can have correct grammar, and if you can know the historical setting, and you will basically be able to extract meaning from the text. And so maybe an example would be, you have a, a passage in the Old Testament where God's telling Israel, um, you know, even if a, a mother forgets uh, her child, um, basically a mother would never forget her child, neither will I forget you. Hmm. You know, do we say, oh, yes. So um, God, you know, the speaker, you know, that 
is supposed, you know, the voice of God is supposed to, is talking and making a promise specific to Israel for that time. And you only isolate that context. And of course, if you're not a, a believer, you don't think this is really God talking either. But yeah. this is something only, a pr- only something made a promise for Israel then. It's not so much something that's applicable now. So in the church, maybe we might say, maybe I'm going through something and maybe maybe I've been abandoned by a parent and yet God's not going to abandon me. So, you know, I mean, that's a connection I've made that's not there in the text, but it is. I've drawn something by analogy. And so that assumes in sense uh, historicity, but not that historicity is uh, codified or concretized in a specific instance it's essentially a, a a wind that keeps on blowing blowing and blowing it's not something that just remains static in the past yeah that's that's the that's the sense i get of this viewpoint and mm-hmm. i don't i still have some studying to do and i don't agree with everything Fowl concludes or all of his analogies i don't think they're all good analogies that he makes in his um text and i won't go through those that's a, another <laughs> subject so but now we uh shifting gears to the main part of our podcast we have uh in, in talking about theological interpretation of scripture and historical grammatical issues and even the synthesis therein possibly, um, what does this mean then for uh, a theology of gender, uh, specifically uh, as we get from the New Testament or even just the broader uh, Bible? Yeah, so I don't want to give away too much of my larger research project, especially because if I change my mind, <laughs> it's, it's here forever. Um, no, so... So maybe to condense it down, um, a big problem I see with this overall gender debate is um, individuals will take certain passages, um, they like them because they're propositions or they sound explicit, so uh, women should not teach or exercise authority over a man. Uh, Oh look, that seems clear. Of course it's in isolation, but that's another thing. Um, But they'll take certain passages and then all the other passages get kind of subsumed under those. So instances where women do appear to be teaching and exercising authority are qualified in various ways, or maybe they're not really doing that. Um, So Deborah either isn't really a judge, or maybe it was God's last resort judge, or um, maybe, I mean, there's so many women actually doing these things in the Bible, they all have to be subsumed. Um, maybe Galatians 3.28 isn't really saying women should be fully allowed to participate in the life of the church, even in leadership. Maybe it's just more they are spiritually um, on par with men, but not uh, not in the life of the church as is the context. And we'll get into that another time. But um, I think if you were to take this kind of research perspective, you would have to, number one, be aware that, yes, you are coming to the text, you, ha- you are culturally influenced. Yeah. complementarians are, egalitarians are, we all are. That's not necessarily a bad thing, that's a human thing. Um, but it's good to be aware of that, because otherwise we kind of let it rule us, I think. Um, and then also we have to make sure to let this let the diversity of scripture speak to us. Not just try to think, not just approach a text thinking we know everything about it because we know of this other text over here. Or my tradition has already told me what I think about this text. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I would say maybe bringing ourselves into conversation with the text. And so we let the text kind of um, change our viewpoints, change our world. Um, And then, but also put the text in conversation with each other, not have one that's controlling everything. Um, That goes for egalitarians too. 
Oh yeah, you'll you'll get egalitarian saying uh, Galatians three twenty eight is the Magna Carta. I think it was Paul Jewett uh, here at Fuller who said something like that, where you had uh, everything essentially was filtered through Galatians three twenty eight, and then uh, any other uh, seemingly uh, difficult text was nullified or removed from the equation, or, or essentially was uh, subordinated to it. And I, I see complementarians doing this as well. Any debate I have with a complementarian on this issue. Uh, usually re is reduced to, well, 1 Timothy 2.12 essentially uh, overrides anything you you might say on this topic or any other scripture text, and then you get this sense in which um, scripture uh, becomes a not something to be engaged with or to learn from, it becomes something that um, props up my point of view. And so it's like, as, as that arch-conservative Rudolf Bultmann said, uh, no, it's, there's no such thing as presuppositionalist exegesis. So when someone says, I'm just reading the text, it's like, well, yes, you are, you, you may be. You are reading the text, you are that reading is the for text, sure. But you, but you are in, let's say, Southern California, in, uh, in a conservative subculture that's responding to the larger liberal culture of California. So you're going to push against any sort of notion of, quote, liberalism. And so you're not going to see liberation theology or you're not going to see um egalitarianism as a viable option because your culture doesn't demand that of you in fact your culture has already essentially pushed you in a direction before you've even been born so it's kind of like you know sin and stuff like that and how that relates to uh theological anthropology and what we're born into but that's a whole different discussion well and then there's the thing where we want to kind of try to um make every sanitize the bible as well so i mean the thing is people were in some really messed up situations and sometimes uh, Paul's advice or other biblical writers' advice or commands uh, are very contextual as well. And so let's let the Bible speak as much as possible and be aware that we're the ones that are listening and hopefully having a conversation back. Yeah, and not shutting off conversation with other Christians who think differently. I mean, you have such a diversity of views on this. I mean, you've got people that... Uh, like your old professor, Grant Osborne, egalitarian in the church, complementarian in the home. And so there are d a range of viewpoints that people come with. You know, if you're in a progressive denomination, you know, women in ministry is going to be normal. You know, and you know, if you're in a conservative denomination, not having women is going to be normal. And so often the issue is not what does scripture say, but what is normal to me? And that becomes um, problematic because we don't see the text at that point. We see what we want to see in the text and we essentially prioritize and uh, trans bible translations have a lot to deal with this as well but that's, yeah, that's, that's that's in its own self another debate <laughs> we're gonna we're thinking we're gonna go through a lot of these passages do a whole podcast on each one uh, we'll do all the ones that people we'll do the ones everyone wants to know about first like first timothy two twelve. like people are so horribly distracted while talking about anything else so we'll cover that one first um and then maybe we'll do first corinthians uh 14 or 11 We'll do Ephesians 5, we'll go into Genesis, um, we'll go into lots of the egalitarian passages, um, and maybe we're, we're thinking too, we'll go ahead and cover passages that I don't know of anyone as a whole who's covering these, uh, maybe more obscure ones where you have uh, warrior imagery mixed with birthing imagery for God. Um, lots of interesting things that are out there, but... And also just different hermeneutical issues that arise when you have, um, like you said, the historical grammatical issue of, of what we would say pure lexicography. The words mean one thing and one thing only, and that's it. 
versus a, a sole theological interpretation. And egalitarians tend actually tend to be both. Philip Payne is a lexicography kind of you know kind of guy. Uh, evangelicals are, I mean, generally take I think the historical grammatical method now. Um, it's the you know with our own little slant, but yeah, uh, I it, it's the, it's one of those things where words do have a range of meaning though and again there, there is context involved but i mean you are for the most part understanding my words that i'm speaking right now but if i started substituting random words that don't really make any sense for like car said one that's gibberish i just said so yeah. you know i mean let's not let's not go nuts with um deciding a word means whatever we want it to mean oh, yeah a word can mean several or many things but it can't mean everything and a ver same thing with verse same thing with an author same thing everything they can mean a lot of different things but it's not as if they can mean quite literally everything or anything and i, I think scripture itself seems to contain that sort of recklessness i think with the biblical texts yeah, and so, I mean, some things get confusing, I think, just because we're English speakers, and so um, certain things seem obvious in the text when we're reading it in English that maybe wouldn't be so obvious to others. Uh, I mean, headship is a very English concept. Um, we use the word head to mean leader all the time. We don't even know we're using a metaphor most of the time. Um, now, when head is used as a metaphor in... The Bible, particularly in the New Testament in Greek, uh, it's very, it, I would say it's not, they're not thinking leader first. And so that's going to change your interpretation if you think these passages are talking about the man being the head or the leader over the wife when maybe Paul's talking about something completely different, which we'll get into once we cover that. Yeah, and that, I mean, 1 Corinthians 11 is probably the most difficult section of scripture i that think too. in the bible and so i exercising extreme care extreme precision with language um helps us and that's where the historical uh, grammatical issue comes in where we can narrow things down it's a way of kind of trimming away a lot of the the crap that we've attached to these sorts of things but then that can language can only take you so far language can't tell you what something existentially means what yes. it means on a different plane it can't you know and so it doesn't tell you exactly can't build your relationship with god no it can't. <laughs> surprise surprise i mean so i could i can look at you know christ is the um the mercy seat in romans 3 that means absolutely nothing to me because he's talking about uh an old artifact in the old testament but if I look at it in but terms... But is that what it means? Well, no. If, yeah. if, if he's referring to Christ as the mercy seat, as the Hilasterion, that carries a lot more meaning than telling me, oh, yeah, that, that means an ancient artifact that's probably dust right now. You know, and so there, there seems to be a, a great symmetry between these things that I, I think uh, on any issue, whether it's hell, theological anthropology, inerrancy even, which could be an interesting topic. How does this, how do these two relate with the authority of scripture? But um, that's that, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, let's do this. Um, since uh, we're doing a general podcast this time around, and we'll go into some of the specific uh, verses maybe a little later, um, next podcast. Uh, Nick, uh, why, why egalitarianism? Why egalitarianism as, a, as true? Why is it true or why? Yeah, just tell, uh, maybe tell them a little bit about your journey and I'll tell them about mine. Well, I was raised in a very... Uh, unspoken complementarian setting my dad was very much uh, described it as uh as um 
I think he called it benevolent headship or benevolent patriarchy, whatever the term he used. He's probably joking a little yeah, bit. I think so. Term. I think it was mostly joking. My mom would have smacked him if he said that in front of her. <laughs> but, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, at that point, uh, spoken complementarianism, but largely functional egalitarianism, albeit with some hiccups because no couple's perfect. And we know that too. And every couple knows that. But your church is very complementary. My church, my church setting, the the fundamental subculture I was in. There's no way a woman would have. I mean, we didn't even have women ushers. Like it was that kind of thing. Mm. And so coming at it from that angle, I was already predisposed just by just my culture to be opposed to any sort of whiff of feminism. It didn't help that you know political correctness was taken as something where if you say something that made a woman mad, you're doing something right. Mm. And if you were saying really offensive things and getting people mad, you're doing somehow the Lord's work. And that sort of thing, I mean, there's political correctness is great, uh, provided you know what you're actually doing with it. South Park does it really well. <laughs> uh, well, mostly well. But in any case, um, it was a it was being challenged to actually uh, examine my own, I would say, prejudices uh, and go back to the New Testament. I had never heard a sermon about Deborah. I didn't know how any of these women were in the Bible. Yeah, I said, what about Deborah? He's yeah. like, Deborah who? I, I don't know. I don't even know who the hell this woman was. Um, so I went back <laughs> and I just started reading it and... Uh, it was a long process. I had to. I still had verses that I couldn't reconcile. But being trained in narrative and story and uh, screenwriting and storytelling, you you notice subtleties a lot more in biblical text. So how Jesus treats women says a lot more than a proposition would, um, or at least the impact would be a lot more than a proposition would. How Paul speaks about women in Romans 16, how he actually functionally acts with women, spoke a lot more than you know his other words elsewhere. And so it's one of those things where you just you notice narrative and you notice uh, dynamics. You're trained to to see and write these things. So it's like if I want to, why would I put this woman here? Well, she has to serve a purpose. Why is Aphia mentioned in Philemon one two? Oh, well, she's probably the head of the church, or she's worthy enough to be included in the greeting. So that's really cool. So that means she's not just a throwaway character. Yeah. So taking note of place character placement. Yeah, literary qualities of the of these of these women and how the men treat these women. Um, and how uh, women are mentioned as household owners in a time when that was not common, Chloe's people and 1 Corinthians And some 1. of that does take um, knowing some of the background as well, because some, mm. some things that we take for granted um, just are not obvious then, and we'll get into some of that with the household codes and uh, comparing it to Ephesians 5. Yeah, but it, it, to sum it all up, my what happened to me was uh, you have all these narrative elements, you have storytelling, you have images and symbols that communicate egalitarianism and then i came up against one timothy two and basically my initial freak out was well inerrancy can't be true because the bible quite literally contradicts itself at this point there are two competing and contradictory elements and of course that wasn't solved for me for two years i ended up being egalitarian because that was the weight of the evidence pushed me there but it wasn't fully solved and then i read philip payne's book man and woman one in christ and he completely eviscerated the complementarian reading i had for 1 timothy 2 uh 2 12 and there are, there are elements in the book i'm not entirely on board with but by and large that entire that 100 or 200, 150 pages or so how that he spends on it completely wrecked my complementarian reading of 1 timothy 2 and i said i've got no reason to in any sense existentially exclude a woman from her gifts and her calling which is in itself a, a greater theological theme as well in the new testament the, the idea of calling gentiles women, everyone, being called to service in God's people. And that itself was a, a major theme that I didn't see being grappled with. So, all in all, yeah, it was it was storytelling and propositions that finally met after a couple about a year of really difficult study. Yep. And for me, uh, my church was actually, I'd say, assumed egalitarian. 
Uh, there were no egalitarian arguments being launched launched left and right. Uh, one of our pastors was a woman, and the senior pastor uh, was a man. Uh, he's very encouraging. Uh, Lee McDonald is mm. probably the reason I am in higher education now. Uh, <laughs> uh, he just always listened to me as a kid and uh, gave me encouragements and had me ask more questions and had the humility to say when he didn't know and... Um, and this guy was did like his PhD at Edinburgh, like insanely smart guy, like creepy smart almost. Yeah. So yeah, and <laughs> I actually was more interested in the biblical canon. I was like a junkie. I would read all Lee's books, and I would read all the books that he hated too. Um, <laughs> I hope he's not listening. Uh, anyway, uh, so I was more into that side of things. I was reading through the early church fathers. Um, I was. Um, going to Eastern Orthodox liturgies all the time. So very interested in the early church. Um, also very interested in studying the heck out of Romans and the exegetical points. Um, it, when I went into, when I was at Biola uh, as an undergrad, I really didn't know I was out of place. I was just naturally interested and in always asking questions and always interested in the Bible and about God. And um, I remember I was at a kind of an orientation class and it was just kind of, we. I noticed, like, oh, I'm the only woman in here, and hmm. that's odd. And I thought it was just a grand coincidence. I, I didn't even know that we were all the same major. When I found out we were all the same major, Bible and theology, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I wonder why that is. Oh, well, you know, stroke of luck. Um, I was pretty oblivious, I, I'd say, all through my undergrad. Uh, there were lots of, I think, little bits of not-so-nice gender issues that I just kind of thought were ice, all isolated incidences, every last single one of them. Hmm. Um, people feeling threatened by my gender and someone saying that they were afraid women would stop making pie. I thought it was a joke, but... Well, that's, um, I mean, we, we can all get on board with that. If women stop making pie, then the world would explode. Well, I do like making pie, so you're in luck. Well, I like making but, pie, too, so... And I like eating them. That has something I mean, to do with pie it. Pie is good. Anyways, um... <laughs> Make a long story short, my I basically was taught complementarianism only really in at Biola in my Bible classes and seemed straightforward to me. I wasn't really given good egalitarian arguments. I was given really crappy ones and I had no real doubt um, to uh, against my professors and I didn't really hold very strong views and so okay, I guess complementarianism's true. Um, my dad actually argued with me over um, women in the church, though. Um, my dad is a pastor. And he convinced me that um, there was more to 1 Timothy 2.12 than I had thought. And basically convinced me of complementarianism in the church. You mean egalitarianism in the church? Oh, sorry. Egalitarianism. In, ah, he, he reversed my complementarianism. There we go. Yeah, there we go. Um, and so I, I was kind of mismatched for a while. And then... Because you were complementarian in the home. Yes, I was still complementarian in the home. And I tried to reconcile it in various ways. And I was just trying to make a picture that fit, really, yeah. um, with scripture and with, um, you know, what I thought was my experience later. Um, and basically, I ended up taking a theology of gender class with Ron Pierce. Yep, took it too. And I wasn't, you know, I didn't have any strong opinions coming in. Um, I was neither here nor there on the gender issue, and I just thought, oh, this would be interesting. I liked taking things I hadn't learned anything about before, so mm -hmm. I'm like, eh, here we go. 
And sure enough, um, the more I started reading and I learned some good um, hermeneutics from Biola and started applying them as I took his class and came out, surprise, surprise, egalitarian. Um, it all started because I found out that I, um, Azer in the um, Old Testament did not mean, or helper did not mean a subordinate. Uh, it was a military term most often used of God, the helper of Israel. It's this idea of a strength corresponding to Adam, not a subordinate there to come alongside and kind of do the work that... <laughs> Um, do the housework in the garden, basically. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, things like that, and then getting more into First uh, Timothy and um, Ephesians 5, especially. I was like, I don't know how... I remember saying, I don't know how he's going to explain away the uh, headship passages. <laughs> and then, sure enough, yeah, he more than explained them away. Um, so that was more or less my journey. It wasn't that grand. Um, I'm glad I became egalitarian, and I'm glad I took his class, because... I had a lot of difficulty ahead of me going into um, my MDiv degree and um, just all the people I encountered and really people wanting to make sure that I left um, my educational pursuits at all cost. Like, people did not think I should be there. Um, they were horrified and, like, scared that I would become a senior pastor, even though I wasn't even thinking along those terms at the time. So, well, good job, guys. Now, uh, you know, I've at least considered pastoral ministry. And she has preached, so. I yes, mean. I have preached. And I liked it. Oh, so fun. Uh, so, winding this all up. So, yeah. resources uh, for people. I mean, you have. Uh, the, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, so I would like to, of course, um, I love Philip Payne's Man and Woman, One in Christ. That's my favorite ever. Um, I found it in the Trinity Evangelical Divinity School Library. And I just kept checking it out. Then I finally decided to buy it. Um, it's the best book out there on just going through the um, Pauline passages. Um, there's nothing better out there yet. Um, We're still waiting on Cynthia Westfall's book, Pauline Gender, which is a little more comprehensive than than Payne's work. I'll hopefully be reviewing it for, an, for a journal, but we'll see what happens. But we're looking forward to that one. It's been several years coming, and Westfall is... Uh, expert in linguistics and discourse analysis and verbal aspect when it comes to Greek and should be a really amazing work. I'm, I have very high hopes for it. Yeah, that's, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Um, I'm also going to recommend Ron Pierce and Rebecca Grotius's uh, Discovering Biblical Equality, um, Complementarity Without Hierarchy. And that's a great book. Uh, I, they started it um, in response to Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Um, and they, complementarians hate that they use the term complementarity, but really it's, it sums up what egalitarians believe very well. Um, we don't, we think the genders complement each other. We don't think, um, My wife is not the same as me. That would be very creepy. I would be very creeped out if that were the case. Yeah. We think we're different I, in I wonderful like my ways. Wife being different from me. That's more why wife similar, is. but as human beings, but some different gender differences, but nothing that would um, lead us to think Nick should be the exclusive leader just because he's a a man. <laughs> I can't make babies. That's a big difference. Well, yeah. that's true. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's a good gender difference. I'm okay with that. Yeah, I am okay with this too. Yeah. Like, well, don't ask me when I'm having children. Well, yeah, no. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, I would also recommend uh, the, the Two Views book on women in ministry is probably a, a great distillation of both views. Um, 
I, I wasn't actually very impressed with Shriner or Blomberg's because essentially what you have is a boiled down um, work that uh, is entirely uh, self-contained. There's very little theological imagination to it, and it relies almost exclusively on, I would argue, just presuppos presuppositions about what it means to be male or female, especially in the, the Old Testament and uh, in, in Genesis. Um, so I wasn't impressed with either one, but it is a, it's still a good kind of distillation if you want to see some interaction. Um, Linda Belleville's book, uh, Three Questions, who I don't remember what it's called it's uh it's women leaders in the church uh it's 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 more broad than pain uh it's 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 broad it's, too, it, it's culturally broad but it's not as in-depth on the paul passages which everyone seems to run to but it's a good one a good blog also is uh the junior project yes for, uh for real good stuff gail and uh and kate are amazing and all that so yeah and something we've been noticing as of late and i'm not going to name any names but it seems like there's a lot of people out there now that they have egalitarian-ish beliefs but they're really kind of more syncretistic with maybe some of the new i'd say new cultural developments in the in the secular world yeah um and that just has not been egalitarianism for the longest time and so i i would t if you are interested in this issue i would take the time to just find the uh, quality folks that are taking historical positions on christianity and um, have e thoroughly egalitarian understandings of gender that go back to um, the 19th, even the like 19th century feminist. Yeah, pioneers like Sarah Grimke, uh, Catherine Bushnell, who wrote an entire book, God's Word to Women, which the way she argues sounds pretty fundamentalist, actually, in, 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 the, in the old school sense, fire and brimstone kind of style, but as committed to the authority of scripture and arguing against uh, what she perceived as abuses in translation. So it wasn't as if she was underwriting scripture. In fact, she's following the Reformation principle, reformed and always reforming, going straight back to the, authorita the authoritative inspired word of God. And I, I think at its heart, that's what all egalitarianism is, is going back to what Paul and Jesus actually said. And I'd say um, before we close up, um, just to summarize um, for us, egalitarianism is about mutual submission. So it's not about a zero sum. If I if I win, Nick loses. If Nick wins, I lose. Yeah. Or only one of us can have the last say. Or only one of us can be the leader. Um, otherwise, the whole world will fall apart. You know, I mean, I don't think the real world. You know, it, it <laughs> things aren't that simple. Let's put it that way. And we believe that I am called to submit to Nick at, as his wife. And that Nick is called to submit to me as, you know, so as, as husband, we yeah. had this um, even in our vows. So we feel very strongly about this point. Yeah. I mean, if you're fulfilling the vision of the New Testament, I, I don't see any problem arising from this. In fact, I see it as a, a full outworking of what the New Testament vision is for male and female in marriage. And also as for single women and men, too, is um, living out your gifts and your calling that are given to you exclusively by God. And also if you're married living your life as not having authority over the other person but base but self-abasement emptying yourself in love for the other person and yeah. if you're doing that then the last thing i have on my mind is i gotta have the last word i have to be the authoritative role in this or i have to make the tough decision or i have to do this sort of thing it's like no it's it's we're team and i think a lot of complementarians actually in practice um embody this and i think I think really it's a Christian idea that we're supposed to give deference to one another. Um, we're supposed to love others as much as we're supposed to love ourselves. Bearing one another's and, burdens and love. Yeah. Yeah. And egalitarianism applies it um, 
to gender in the fullest way. And so I think, yeah, I think that's a good way to leave off. And um, we hope that you'll join us for the next one. Uh, we'll probably go into, how about First Timothy 2.12? Yeah, that's the one that's probably going to be copied and pasted on this post from someone who don't like what we said. So. Thank you.